welcome back to the Very Short Introductions podcast. From public health to Buddhist ethics, soft matter to classics and art history to globalisation, we'll showcase a concise and original introduction to a wide range of subjects for wherever your curiosity may take you. So here is today's Very Short Introduction. I'm David Bender. I retired some years ago and I am Emeritus Professor of Nutritional Biochemistry at University College London. My book is called Very Short Introduction to Nutrition, and its topic is, unsurprisingly, nutrition. We all eat food, about a ton a year for an average adult. We all know what we like and dislike. We all know something about calories, protein, fat and carbohydrate, something about vitamins and minerals. Where we all need help is in distinguishing between sound evidence-based nutrition advice and the sometimes extremely flaky pseudoscience promulgated in some books, some magazine articles, and perhaps especially by so-called influencers on social media. I became a nutritionist by what was probably a rather unusual route, in that my father was a nutritionist, and I made a conscious decision to be a biochemist. He had originally qualified in biochemistry at Liverpool University. My fate as a biochemist was probably determined before the age of three, when I'm reliably informed that on visiting Dad in Krebs Laboratory in Sheffield, I pronounced my first, if somewhat ungrammatical, full sentence, saying, Labs is wonderful. I duly read biochemistry at Birmingham University, having chosen not to apply to Liverpool or Leeds because I had too many relations in those cities, Edinburgh because it was too far from home, and University of London colleges because they were too close to home. After Birmingham, I returned to London to do a PhD at the Cordold Institute of Biochemistry of the Middlesex Hospital Medical School. I was tasked with attempting to purify and characterise an enzyme involved in the synthesis of the neurotransmitters dopamine and serotonin. At that time, one of the major interests of the department was neurochemistry. After my PhD, I remained in the department and my research moved on to amino acid metabolism in schizophrenia. This led to comparisons between schizophrenia and the mental disturbances of the nutritional deficiency disease pellagra. I was now set on a nutrition-related career. As a junior lecturer at the Middlesex, I inherited two lectures from the head of department on aspects of nutrition, and over the years gradually increased my portfolio of nutrition lectures as people began to recognise the importance of nutrition in medical education. I backed up these lectures not only with nutrition research on aspects of the metabolism of vitamin B6, niacin and the amino acid tryptophan, but also writing on wider aspects of nutrition. There are, of course, routes other than biochemistry into a career in nutrition. Unlike the early 1960s, there are now multiple BSc courses in the UK and elsewhere in nutrition or nutrition with either dietetics or food science. In advance of the merger of the Middlesex with University College in 1987, members of the Department of Biochemistry at UCL had set in motion the paperwork to create a course unit in nutritional biochemistry for me to organise and teach. It was very popular among the third-year students as a pointer to a potential career path. Other routes into a career in nutrition include, on the one hand, clinical medicine, dentistry, veterinary medicine, microbiology, pharmacology, physiology, agriculture, perhaps even analytical chemistry, and on the other hand, social and behavioural sciences, anthropology, 
psychology, statistics, public health medicine. A degree in nutrition may lead you into a laboratory career investigating the underlying biochemical and physiological mechanisms, research in clinical nutrition and nutritional medicine involving clinical trials and working with human beings, research in or practice of sports medicine, dietetics, public health nutrition or international development. You may end up working in a university, school or college of further education, in a hospital, in a government department dealing with public health, food safety and standards or agriculture, in a non-governmental organisation in a developing country, in a food company developing food either for people or for farm or domestic animals, in a pharmaceutical company developing supplements. I know of at least two nutrition graduates who took their knowledge into practical nutrition by opening restaurants. If you read even a relatively advanced textbook of nutrition, you might gain the impression that we have answered all the questions. Not so. In Britain, the Nutrition Society runs four major conferences each year, each lasting several days, and publishes five research journals and one review journal, all of which are continually expanding as each increase in our knowledge leads to more questions to be answered. Other learned societies and scientific publishers are similarly expanding their journals with high-quality nutrition research. There are regular and frequent international and regional nutrition conferences where new data and new ideas are exchanged, discussed and explained. We have reliable measurements of energy expenditure and hence total calorie requirements for people at various stages of life and under various conditions by using non-invasive techniques involving the use of dual isotopically labelled water, water labelled with stable isotopes of hydrogen or oxygen. The subjects just drink the labelled water and provide urine samples over a period of two to three weeks. In short-term studies, we can measure oxygen consumption, carbon dioxide production and heat output from the body over a few hours under various conditions and in various activities. These studies also let us estimate the relative amounts of fat, protein and carbohydrate being metabolised for energy. Even here, there is a lot more research to be done. How about energy expenditure in extreme activity, moderate physical activity, in response to reduced food intake for weight reduction, in recovery from severe undernutrition, especially in developing countries, in disease, and so on. There is considerable interest in potential changes to farm animal diets, both to increase productivity and the efficiency of conversion of feed into meat and eggs, and also for ruminants to reduce the production of methane, which is a potent greenhouse gas. We can be fairly confident that we have identified the essential nutrients for human beings, for domestic and farm animals. We have reasonably good estimates of the amounts of each required to prevent deficiency disease. However, it's notable that different expert committees and different national and international bodies come up with different estimates of appropriate levels of intake. For example, we can justify a reference intake of vitamin C at any level between 40 and about 120 milligrams a day based on the same somewhat limited experimental data, depending on what assumptions are built into the interpretation of the data. There is considerable and sometimes acrimonious debate over appropriate levels of protein intake and the relevance of protein quality, the amino acid composition of different proteins, and the extent to which different proteins are digested and their component amino acids absorbed. 
Here, interpretation of the relatively few direct studies of people maintained on varying levels of intake are confounded by the fact that as protein intake changes, so do the rates of breakdown of tissue protein and their replacement from the diet, so the protein requirements adapt in response to changes in intake. So the length of experimental studies is an important factor to be taken into account. Has enough time been allowed for full adaptation to each level of intake? Where we have even less certainty, especially about vitamins and minerals, is in estimating levels of intake that may promote optimum health, something that in itself is almost undefinable, and life expectancy. The problem here, of course, is that we cannot begin to consider conducting experimental trials of intake of individual nutrients over a period of 80 to 90 years or more. There are a number of long-term observational studies. Probably the oldest is the 1946 birth cohort in the UK, in which every child born in the second week of March in 1946 is still being followed. The Framingham study in USA began in 1948. And again, the original participants and now their descendants are still being followed. While the results of these and other long-term studies are interesting, a great many factors have changed over the last 70 plus years. In 1946 in Britain, food was still rationed. Many foods that are now commonplace were unknown even into the 1960s and 1970s. And of course, diet is far from the only change. Another approach is to conduct a so-called cross-sectional study looking at older people and seeing how their diet may reflect their health. Here we have two problems in interpreting the results. We can examine their current diet, but we have little or no information about what they ate years, perhaps decades ago, when dietary factors may have initiated the processes involved in chronic disease. There are studies showing that older people, perfectly fit and in good health, living in their own homes and looking after themselves, consume considerably more fat, more saturated fat and more sugar than we consider prudent or advisable. The problem here, of course, is that we know nothing at all about those people from the same community who didn't survive to take part in the study. With vitamins and minerals, we also have to consider whether higher levels of intake, as opposed to promoting optimum health and longevity, may be hazardous. Here we have considerably less experimental data, but various national and international bodies have extrapolated from such data as are available and applied the usual safety margins that we apply to toxicity of drugs and food additives to come up with tolerable upper levels of habitual intake. We know it's relatively easy to achieve an undesirably high level of intake of vitamins A and D from supplements, but perhaps not from normal foods, although levels of food fortification or enrichment do need to be monitored. For vitamins and minerals, we have the problem of their availability from foods, as opposed to studies with purified nutrients that have led to our estimates of desirable or appropriate levels of intake. Purified nutrients may well be more or less 100% absorbed, while this is unlikely to be so for nutrients from a complex matrix of foods. We can add a further problem. People do not eat just one food at a time, so there may well be interactions between different foods in the same meal. Certainly we know that the absorption of carotene from carrots ranges between very low indeed when raw carrots are eaten on their own to nearly 100% when cooked carrots are eaten in a meal containing a modest amount of fat. 
Then we have to consider the effects of intestinal microflora, the utilization of nutrients from our diet by the microflora, and the contribution of bacterial and other metabolites to our nutrient and micronutrient intake. We also have to consider the effect of our diet, and especially starch that resists digestion and non-digestible carbohydrates and other compounds on the growth and metabolism of the intestinal microflora. Until recently, identification of intestinal bacteria was a tedious and frequently foul-smelling process of culturing fecal samples under various conditions. Advances in molecular biology mean that we can now identify individual bacterial species easily by extracting their small ribosomal RNA, all of which have many common features which permits their easy extraction and then sufficient differences to permit identification of individual species after separation of amplification. This has led to an explosion in our knowledge of the interactions between diet, intestinal flora, and our health and well-being. Having considered all of these problems, we have to convert nutrient guidelines into dietary guidelines. We don't eat nutrients, we eat foods. This means that we have to consider traditional patterns of food intake and what is likely to be available locally, what do people like or dislike, and how likely are they to eat, or even to try, novel or strange foods. Finally, we have to persuade people to make what we consider to be appropriate changes in their diet. It's depressing to learn that several decades of public health nutrition interventions in Britain have not led to any significant changes in overall patterns of food intake, and certainly no noticeable effect on excessive food intake leading to overweight and obesity. So the take-home message is that if you embark on a career in nutrition, however you came into the discipline and whichever area you specialise in, there are still plenty of unknowns for you to research and plenty of opportunities to promote and teach about more appropriate and desirable patterns of food consumption to improve public health. Thank you for listening to the Very Short Instructions podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on your favourite app, such as Apple or Spotify, to receive all of our episodes directly in your feed. All of our episodes, new and old, can also be found on SoundCloud and YouTube at Oxford Academic. Thank you.